Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. Hi, this is Neil Garfield, and this is Thursday, May 12th. 2016. Tonight we have attorney Randy Ackley from West Palm Beach, Florida as our guest. We're glad to see him return. We are piloting a special at Living Lies on one half hour consults on the basis of uh, a theory that we think that for the most part that is all people might need in order to get started or to get guidance on the their current case. And because we have finished a number of cases, we have a few slots open in which we can represent homeowners directly in Florida or provide litigation support to lawyers who are outside of Florida. You can call for consult where I can help you evaluate your case from the perspective of an expert witness. You can call our new main number at 202-838-6345. The last four digits spells out the name Neil, N-E-I-L. Or you can call 954-495-9867 or 520-405-1688. Before I get to my guest tonight, I wanted to share just a few thoughts You can read about it a little tomorrow, and I'm going to be expanding on it in articles in the future. I've concluded that there are three main soft spots that lawyers should press pretty hard when litigating foreclosure defense. The first one is discovery, and in that, there is the necessity of not just filing a motion to compel or noticing the objections for hearing, but actually preparing a memorandum and perhaps filing an affidavit of an expert as to why you need that information. And then the second one is trial, cross-examination of the so-called witness, the robo-witness. And properly prepared and where the lawyer really drills down into the witness, it's revealed pretty quickly that the witness really knows nothing. And if you look at the appellate decisions, you'll see that they go over that testimony to justify uh, either affirming what the trial judge did in excluding certain exhibits uh, and testimony, or in reversing the trial judge who let it in anyway. And then there's mediation. 
I haven't talked much about mediation and modification and all that. Mediation is where judges are particularly receptive to arguments about the servicer or bank not sending a person who has full settlement authority. There is plenty of authority you can cite to that judges already know about that says the representative at mediation must have full settlement authority without the need to make a phone call and without the need to wait to get authority from some unnamed person. In fact, I have personally been president in the courtroom where the judge specifically looks at the attorney for the servicer or the bank or the trust and, and says, now you're going to bring somebody who actually has full settlement authority, right? And the lawyer always says yes. But he never does because there is no such person that will ever be sent because that person would actually have knowledge that would expose and reveal the fraud that has gone on with these mortgages, with the foreclosures, with the notices of default, and the false claims of ownership of the debt, the note, and the mortgage. The whole thing is a sham in mediation, just like the foreclosure itself, because the servicers and banks are basically sending robo-witnesses to court and to mediation. They give them nothing in the way of real information, and these robo-representatives are required to follow instructions or get fired. The instructions are based at mediation are they're supposed to just hand you a modification application, and that's it. There's no promise that it will be accepted, and there's no offer of terms. That's not mediation. That's not settlement, and that's not settlement authority. Motions for sanctions are getting better and better hearings from judges now. I actually said to one judge recently, at what point do this court's orders mean anything? He was upset with my question, and he was probably upset with me. But he got the point, and he ordered $1,000 per day sanctions against any party who showed up at the third mediation without having full authority to settle and where they were not acting in good faith. It applied to both sides, so you got to show up there with a real intention to settle. But things are happening out there. I'm broadcasting live from Broward County, Florida, brought to you by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, Lending Lies, Amgar, and the Garfield Firm with offices in South Florida. And this show is specially brought to you because of donations to the Living Lies blog from listeners like you. Thank you. And for those of you who are not contributors yet, we ask that you hit the donate button on the blog or call our main number, 202-838-6345. That's 202-838-NEIL, N-E-I-L, which is our new main number, 954-495-9867 or 520-405-1688. And pledge whatever you think you can afford. And, uh, if this show has value for you, if the blog has value to you, I've written almost 5,000 articles there, then please make a contribution to help us continue helping you and all consumers. 
LendingWise is the new platform we're using for the business end of our enterprise, and it will be expanding in a variety of capacities. Some parts of it are working already. Hopefully, uh, many of you have enjoyed the fact that you could just schedule um, a consultation directly uh, online. Uh, when the platform is completed, we hope it will be able to be used for the creation of documents and so forth that will uh, assist in uh, uh, preparing qualified written requests, discovery, memos, pleadings, etc. Let me remind my listeners here that nothing stops a foreclosure. Um, other than a court order. I'm doing something at my console here. Let me just straighten that out. Randy, is that you? No, Randy. Oh, there he is. I made a mistake. Operator error. Okay, Randy's on. Um, there's a lot of people that s sometimes think that a letter, uh, some pleading, uh, an affidavit, or some such thing will actually stop the foreclosure from proceeding. Certainly, many of the foreclosure rescue scams will tell you that pay us $5,000 or $2,000 or whatever will stop your foreclosure. The only thing that stops a foreclosure is a judge signing an order. In, uh, in bankruptcy, that normally is issued as soon as the bankruptcy is filed and it's issued automatically, but there are exceptions to that. Randy Ackley, practicing in West Palm Beach, Florida. This is a guy who walks the walk. He's gone where few lawyers have ventured. He has provided assistance of every kind that was possible after Hurricanes Andrew and Katrina on the ground where the action was happening. He went to Kosovo when the war was raging. He was in Bulgaria when the economy collapsed. And he went to help when the tsunami hit South Asia and when the quakes hit Haiti and Japan. It's an honor to have him again with us. In his view, the economic recession and the foreclosure tidal wave are no less disasters than what he has seen elsewhere firsthand. Unlike me, he gives free consultations, and he can be reached at 561-594-5671. He has great experience litigating foreclosures on behalf of borrowers, and if you are in the area of West Palm Beach, he should be on your short list of attorneys to hire, and for all 50 states, he's someone who could be called by attorneys there uh, for litigation support. Randy, welcome to the show again. Thank you, Neil. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you again for having me. I really do appreciate it. Well, it's good to have somebody who has the heart that you do. Um, uh, I want to read uh, uh, something you wrote for the audience. Uh, 
These days, homeowners facing the loss of their homes are often facing circumstances brought on by the collusion of of the lending industry, creating vastly inflated and false values of their homes to inflate the size of the loans to increase their percentages on transferring the loans, percentages of the loan that is claimed as income by the originators and the other parties that are in league with them, facing bait-and-switch tactics that force them at closing to accept interest-only high-interest loans with monstrous balloons five or ten years out rather than the reasonably priced fixed-rate loans that they had been told that they they were approved for, and I would add, that they did qualify for, and facing monthly payments at rates exploded beyond their capacity to pay as a result of unnecessary forced place insurance or insurance that costs multiples of what it should cost in a fair market. And I would add that in these pick-a-pay loans and so forth, people don't realize how soon their payment, which seems very low, is going to explode to more than their entire household income. And facing foreclosure rather than a loan modified to reasonable rates they were promised, if they just fall behind in payments for three months, we've all heard that one, and facing foreclosure with no notice or communication from the lender that there is a problem alerting the borrowers to the possibility of foreclosure, and facing foreclosure when the mortgage changes hands and the services fail to notify the borrower of that change. And he writes, these circumstances can be defended in court. Unlike hurricanes, tornadoes, floods, and armed conflict, in this disaster there are ways to defend your home against these circumstances and avoid losing the home. There are defenses and strategies that can be employed to overcome each of these circumstances. These are defenses that are not as readily evident in other kinds of disasters. Brandy, first of all, I want to thank you for writing that. I think that that really sums up an awful lot about what we're dealing with here. So um, let me first ask you, um, you were on a couple of weeks ago, uh, have you uh, uh, had uh, uh, situations that might be educational uh, for the audience uh, in the last uh, couple of weeks or that you're working on right now? Absolutely. Neil, I need to just highlight um, how many people have responded to your show um, when I was on just, it was a week or two ago. And the, uh, I've had calls almost daily um, from all over the country, literally all over the country. The one thing that has struck me is, well, I've been struck by many things, but one of the key things that struck me is how many people are desperately looking for attorneys who will fight actively uh, on their behalf in foreclosure. And it's really heartbreaking for me. I'm sure you, you know this feeling um, when I'm not able to respond because it's outside of Florida. I can help in Florida, but outside of Florida, it's just I can offer assistance to the law firms that, that are working with them, and, and I think that suggestion was wonderful, Neil. Thank you for that. Um, but the number of people that have been calling have been saying they've been looking for attorneys in their local bar. They've been trying the state bar. 
And I think there's got to be something that can be done to help people identify attorneys who are actively defending foreclosure, not just those attorneys who are going to do everything they can to avoid trial, uh, including leading their clients to a quick settlement uh, that leads, leaves their clients without a home. I, I'm sure you know what I'm referring to. Yes, indeed. And, and I'll be the bad guy here and take the heat. Um, like most professions, um, I'd say that the 80-20 rule applies and probably only 20% of the lawyers who do this work are actually committed to a, achieving an actual result. Most of them just want to uh, justify the fee that they charged and they're just kicking the can down the road and then they present a modification offer or uh, even just cash for keys that uh, is uh, of no help to the homeowner, but uh, they tell the uh, their client that that's the best they could do. Well, it isn't the best they could do. Lawyers, it, it, it is unconscionable for a homeowner who has been dealing with predatory lenders to end up with predatory vendors, including lawyers. And I have not singled out people who are what I call predatory and who are lawyers, but they know who they are, and many of the people here who listen here know who they are, and those names are shared as comments to my blog. Uh, people like you, Randy, who are about producing a result and getting a satisfactory result that saves the home and in, in effect saves the lifestyle and maybe even the lives because of the stress. That's what I'm looking for. And that's why, you know, I appreciate your coming back on the show on relatively short notice. Um, but thank you for uh, that little plug for, for the show. Um, since we uh, uh, had you on the show, uh, I've written quite a bit about rescission, and I know that this is a relatively new subject for you, but it, it is for that reason that I'm asking you what your thoughts are on rescission under the Truth in Lending Act uh, 15 U.S.C. 1635. Um, I've obviously taken a very strong position that all rescissions are effective regardless of whether they're disputed or not because that's what the Supreme Court said. But unlike what we might have expected uh, in a normal market where people mattered, um, despite the existence of that statute, people who rescind find themselves embroiled in heavy litigation when Congress clearly intended for them to be able to cancel the deal without going to a lawyer and without going to a judge. What are your thoughts on this, uh, the use of that uh, remedy or strategy? That is such an interesting question, and I have to be quite frank. When I first heard 
discussions about rescission several months ago as a as an approach to foreclosure, my thoughts were very I was very skeptical. You know, and honestly, even now when you think about the impact of of enforcing the TILA laws by a it is hard to believe that the results that seem that that should result um, are within grasp. And I have to say, I've had a change of heart these last uh, couple of months. And I think the key thing is in recognizing what led to this exposure to um, defendants, now plaintiffs, uh, pursuing rescission as a remedy. Uh, and that seems to be the wholesale uh, pattern by the, the lending industry of ignoring TILA in dealing with uh, the borrowers. They, they, the, 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 the failure to disclose the TILA uh, provisions and right of rescission at the outset of the loan, um, the failure of the industry to formally consummate their agreements, and that's a key issue here, by the way, especially when you look at the Jezinoski case and you consider the three-year limit uh, that's built into uh, TILA. The issue seems to, and, and, and I need to, in, in interest of full disclosure, you're right, Neil, this is a new area for me. I'm just now getting into it. I have a couple of clients that I'm, I'm pursuing it with now. Um, but the, this whole idea of the way the industry has structured their contracts as adhesion contracts, which is another issue, that's a really important issue in foreclosure defense and that, that, we're, that, that I think is going to have much more weight in the near future, but isn't really the TILA issue. But the, it is to the, to the extent that the banks have structured the mortgages and the notes so that nobody on their behalf ever executes the document. And without having a signature by a representative of the lender at the closing or even afterwards, the contract's never been consummated, ever. And so when you look at the three-year limit to, and, and please correct me if you think I'm wrong, but my thinking at this point is that at this point, the three-year limit on rescission in, in, in 1635, um, I want to say E, I'm not sure, 1635A, that three-year limit it never starts. So you haven't run the three years because they've never consummated the deal. You don't have an executed contract. And that's one of the areas I'm thinking is really important. What's very important though, for anybody listening to the show today, not just with regards to rescission, but in foreclosure as a whole, um, everything has to be perceived on a case by case basis. Every case is, is, is its own case and has its own facts. And well, let me just be back. That and, and and say you know because people uh, think because they've heard something on the show or read something on the blog that that's a magic bullet for all cases that does not exist. Correct. Uh, every, every case has to be analyzed. Every document has to be looked at. There's no shortcuts here. If you use a shortcut, then you're doing what the predatory vendors do with just trying to do a one-size-fits-all thing and justifying a fee that produces no results. Go ahead, Randy. No, I think, I think that's the key. Um, you've got to work your case specifically with the facts that you're presented with and the documents that you're presented with. Um, 
I think also interesting is in, in at least one of the cases I'm working with, there appears to have been a loan mod. And the lender's response to the attempt to rescind is to say that, well, TILA doesn't apply. I, I don't, I can't disagree more. I think TILA does apply, uh, given the Jezinoski case. Um, right. So they're, they're, the lenders are going to keep trying to get out from under this. But had they followed the rules at the, you know, the basic contract rules, and had somebody execute the contract on behalf of the lender when the case was the the the, the closing took place, or or shortly thereafter when they, whenever they had, had identified whoever was going to fund the loan, that would have been one piece. First, that would have consummated the agreement. But that hasn't happened in many cases. Um, you know, you know, I'm. I'm struck by two things that you said. I, um, frankly, I didn't think of on my own, and I just heard it now, about the idea that there's no signature from the lender, so how could there be a contract? Um, I'd have to think about that, but I think you may be on to something there. It certainly is uh, uh, an attempt to make the contract uh, what I call fungible, which is that anybody can pick it up at any time and say that they're now the lender, which obviously has occurred. Um, that is an, a very interesting point that I'm going to think through. Uh, and maybe you and I can conspire on an article for the blog. I would love the, that. The, the other thing uh, that you mentioned was adhesion contracts. Can you expand a little bit on that? Sure. An adhesion contract, the, the elements of an adhesion contract are basically that it's a contract that is drafted by one party and imposed on the other. It's a contract that the party that drafts has the position of power, and it's presented to the other party without any right. There's no, no negotiability about it. It's either take it or leave it. Um, those, those elements of, a, of an adhesion contract apply to the vast majority of, of mortgages, residential mortgages, as we know them um, here in the U.S. And if it's an adhesion contract, it's an unconscionable contract. But that's really, that's, that's really not where that falls into the rescission issue. It's a, if it's unconscionable, it can be attacked as an unconscionable contract. And that's something that, that some colleagues and I are looking at now as a, as a defense. But, but with to rescission, the reason it's relevant is it's drafted entirely and, and controlled entirely by the lender or whomever was sitting on the lender's side of the table. As we know, it wasn't always a lender. Sometimes it was just... Basically, the originator, who's, who's no more than uh, a fee-based uh, uh, service provider that is standing in for the real lender, which makes it a table-funded loan and predatory per se under Reg Z. Yep. And, and, and the, the, the question in my mind, similar to what I said before when I asked the judge, at what point uh, do your orders mean anything? Um, if, if something is predatory per se, as defined by Reg Z and, and, the, and the Truth in Lending Act, I don't understand how that could not be interpreted as against public policy. And if it's against public policy, I don't understand how anybody could get a foreclosure on a mortgage, 
no matter what the financial deal was, because by definition, per se, they have unclean hands. It's it's exactly you're you're exactly right. And at some point, it becomes a, 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 an issue of where society, or at least the, the 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 industry and the court system, is placing placing greater value and weight on the the interests of the industry to be able to negotiate these these mortgages than on the needs of the borrowers who are borrowing the money to buy their homes. Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't go political very much in, in, in what I do on this show or on the blog, but I have to say that this is a prime example, maybe one of the worst, of where the little guy just doesn't matter. And they did all these things. They stole from the investors. They're stealing the security instruments from the investors. And they are uh, loading a false loss factor onto people who are defined as borrowers in a transaction in which, as I've analyzed it as a former investment banker, I'm not sure an actual loan occurred. I don't deny that people got money. But whether it was part of a loan transaction or it was part of a larger transaction that was a fraudulent scheme, that's a real question. And I'm leaning towards the larger transaction where it was part of a fraudulent scheme. Um, the courts understandably want to use what is common knowledge and so they want to look at this as a standard loan or a standard foreclosure. Every time I go into court, the first thing out of the lawyer's mouth is, Judge, this is a standard foreclosure. And <laughs> my, my answer is, Judge, there is no such thing as a standard foreclosure anymore. Absolutely. So... Um, uh, so that's that's my two cents on that. The adhesion contract part of it also, I'm hearing for the first time uh, tonight, I think you may be onto something there. And I do know that there are many law firms across the country that are now looking at what I looked at long ago in 2007, uh, unconscionability and uh, for a variety of reasons. And back when I first looked at it, it was dead on arrival. I mean, yes, there was a, a, a an academic basis for arguing it, but no, there wasn't a single judge in the world that would even consider it. But you know, I think now we're getting into an area and judges are getting really annoyed with the mediation and so forth where they don't send anybody with real settlement authority I think judges are starting to get the idea that um, there is something essentially wrong with the mortgages and essentially wrong with the foreclosures, such that they are more open to it. Now, again, introducing the political factor here, the general fear has been, and, and I've heard uh, from many people that they've actually heard judges on the bench say, I've got to protect the banks. Nobody's saying, i got to protect the population of this country. 
they're saying that I got to protect the banks because they have this fear, which Wall Street planted as a myth, that if the if the banks are hit with rescission, if the banks are hit with no consummation, that their whole infrastructure of securitization will fail. Well, that's true. It will. But that doesn't mean that the real people who put up the money, which is the investors who bought these worthless mortgage bonds in an entity that didn't exist, it doesn't mean that they can't get together with homeowners and work out, as, as I read from your piece, it, work out a reasonable solution rather than the investor being told the loan failed, here's your money, and they get about $3.45 out of it because the servicer and the trustee and everybody else uh, took a cut that eliminated the proceeds. But, so uh you have any thoughts on that? Absolutely. And I think, I think this, this perspective on protecting society by, by helping the banks is a key issue in, in uh, it's my assumption. It's a key issue across the country. I, I need to give a shout out to the Yale Law Journal. I don't know if you saw the article in the Yale Law Journal in February of this year, um, 125 Yale Law Journal 1115. The title of the comment is In Defense of Free Houses. And they do a wonderful job of lifting up the, uh, this whole perspective that for some reason judges across the country have thought they've had to protect the banks and not allow the borrowers to get free houses. When in fact, what they're doing is perpet- by, by, by protecting the banks and allowing the banks to keep bringing lawsuits again and again and again when they haven't been able to prove their cases or, 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 or letting them, them foreclose when they don't have all the proper documentation that they, they need. And, when they, and, and by allowing the, the, the banks to get away with lawsuits or the, the, the plaintiffs to get away with lawsuits and win foreclosure when they don't have proper evidence and they, they, they're willing to bend the evidence rules. By doing that, what they're doing is perpetuating this bad practice in the industry and, in fact, encouraging it. So now, I don't know if you've heard this, Neil, but I've heard it quite a bit. A lot of the folks in the, in, in the foreclosure uh, law area are concerned that we think there's another bull coming. And, and again, the, 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 the mortgage companies are colluding to inflate values of houses to get bigger loans. And again, we, we're hearing about subprime loans again, of all things. Um, and, and the motive again is to, to, to start ramping up these, these, these securitizations. You know what? Yeah, I, if the, if the banks think... had their feet held to the fire, we wouldn't be facing that again. They would be fixing themselves. They'd be doing the contracts properly. They'd be, they'd be working with the homeowners to settle their cases and, and get them, keep them in their homes for reasonable prices where the homeowners can pay and the, the loans pay off reasonable amounts. Instead, the banks are, are being encouraged to, to keep up the practices of basically syndicated crime. Well, uh, I am familiar with the Yale Law Review. I think I published a link to it, uh, and I thought it was very good. Um, as for the crisis that uh, and, and the bubble that's occurring now, uh, yes, I, I'm quite certain uh, uh, using uh, whatever credentials I have as an investment banker and an economist that uh, the only way that 
they're able to hide the fact that the recession is still alive and well, unfortunately, for most people, um, is by kicking the can down the road and allowing more of these bubbles to take them down the road. I think we're we're dealing with a, an implosion coming up again uh, in the very near future. Um, uh, when I predicted it uh, back in two, in September of 2008, I thought it was six months away, and it turned out to be six weeks away. Um, uh, I, I and what what this does. It's like eating your young. Um, by crushing the middle class and turning parts of the middle class to the poverty class, below the poverty line, you're removing income that could be spent in consuming goods and services. And that's 70% of our active economy. And if you just want proof of that to what has happened, look at how they're now measuring the GDP, and you'll find that whereas the financial sector was stable at 16% of gross domestic product, it's now 50%, just a little under, of gross domestic product, which basically means that Wall Street is making money throwing papers back and forth across a desk based on transactions that are in decline, manufacturing in decline, a lot of services in decline, partially because of some of the stupid trade deals we did that need correction. So that's my the, the end of my rant on politics. Well, well I so, hope not, Neil. Let me ask you something yeah. about that. If, if, well, the banks, yeah. the last, if the banks for the last five years had been forced by the courts to follow the law and had been giving up free houses for five years, do you think we're in the position we are now? No, we wouldn't have had the recession at all. The, the uh, uh, forcing, first of all, the banks did not have a loss. The banks were not making loans, so they couldn't have suffered a loss when they went into default. The banks were using investor money to make those loans. The banks did not have, the banks were not buying mortgage bonds. They were selling mortgage bonds. So they couldn't have had a loss from that. So the whole TARP thing, which pumped all kinds of money, and, and the, the money that came from the Federal Reserve to buy those mortgage bonds at face value, and the uh, expansion of the uh, currency uh, by, the, by the Federal Reserve, all in the name of saving the banks, basically lowered the purchasing power uh, substantially of most of the country, which is what produced the recession. We're at that point again. You know, one of the things that I always mention to people when we get talking about this is over the last 30 years, or 40 years maybe, the banks actually have most people thinking that their credit score, which is 
how much how well and how much they can borrow is more important than the money they have in the bank and it's gotten to the point where people because of suppression of wages and so forth have no money in the bank and so their last option is to borrow more of it this is a going out of business strategy and I'm hopeful that at some point uh, the Democrats, the Republicans, the liberals, the conservatives uh, will wake up to what's really happening here. And just to be fair to both sides, I have a favorite expression that says that liberals have not really liberated anybody uh, to any uh, substantial degree. And conservatives have not conserved anything to any substantial degree. They just talk about it. <laughs> so, um, okay, we only have a, a, a few minutes left here. Um, talk a little bit, uh, if you would, for just a moment, on um, the presumptions that judges are using which conflict with the actual facts. Well, let's talk about the standing issue like we talked about. Let's touch on that for a minute. There is a, okay. a, a recent case out of the 4th DCA um, which suggests that having a photocopy of an endorsed note is enough uh, to create a presumption that the plaintiff has the original note in its possession where it brings the lawsuit. And for folks listening to the show in Florida, the the plaintiff has to have standing to bring the lawsuit when they bring the lawsuit. And in order to have standing in a foreclosure action, you've got to, you've got to have possession of a duly endorsed note to you, duly endorsed to you or in blank. So like a blank check um, when you bring the lawsuit, but what the court has now just said, and Mark Stopa just, just argued against this in the second DCA, I think today, um, what the court just said in the fourth is, um, if you have a photocopy, that's enough to prove that you have uh, to create a presumption that you have the original note. Now, here's the problem. First of all, the borrowers are almost never going to be in a position to know what the chain of title uh, of possession of the original note is on the side of the lenders and, and the servicers. God knows who has what. That's the problem. But by having a photocopy now, the bank can say, well, we had or the plaintiff can say we have the original note at the outset of the lawsuit. The problem is that we can email, I can email everybody listening to the show today a copy of a, of, of a, a, a duly endorsed in blank note. And, and according to the court, that would give them the ability to file a lawsuit and say they have standing when they bring the lawsuit. Now, borrowers wouldn't know when that person got the original note before the lawsuit, wouldn't know if they had standing at the inception of the lawsuit, because there's no way to challenge that as a defendant, or very few ways. So that's one of the presumptions. That's, a, a, I think, a terrible uh, burden on, uh, and, a, and a mistake, uh, I think, uh, in, in the fourth DCA. Another one, of course, is going back to an issue we raised last week, where it, it, everybody should, I think everybody listening probably knows nationwide that in courts generally, there is a rule against admitting hearsay. And hearsay is a statement made up of the court being, being presented to the court for the truth of the matter asserted. Well, one of the documents, some of the documents you need to get in court if you're going to win on foreclosure are business records. Um, and you get those. I'm going to have to there, Randy. 
we're we're running out of time, but I think that's the subject of the next time you appear on the show, which I hope will be shortly. Uh, I find that talking to you is stimulating for me, and I assume it has been stimulating for our audience. Thank you for appearing, Randy Ackley, and uh, thank you, everyone. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lies Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.